So uh, two years into my first stint as a full-time youth minister, I take my students on what's called trek. If you're not familiar, you go out to a mountain range in, uh, in Colorado, and I am doing this for the very first time. We're trying to summit uh, a 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado. I had camped out on a stairwell, uh, on a Stairmaster, okay? Uh, Stairmaster time was, uh, I mean, I, according to the, the Stairmaster thing, I climbed the Empire State Building like 47 times, okay? I had done this a lot. I was really pumped and ready. Now, it's difficult to really summit. Uh, the, the hard part with a group is when you go up with a group, you're only, you only move as fast as your least athletic and slowest person. We had a kid in our group who was incredibly out of shape, um, like apex out of shape. Um, it, it was bad. And it took us a while, but we're trying to summit Mount Chavano. And uh, Mount Chavano is, is a fairly easy summit compared to a lot of other mountains. And, and so you can see, like, like there's, it's not like a straight up climb, and you do a lot of switchbacking, but we get past what's called the tree line. You can see the tree line, if you look at the image, uh, where it gets wider, where it gets lighter, um, that's where the tree line switches. So the darker, greener area, that's trees. And we get a little past the tree line on our summit day, and we're told you get a summit attempt. They don't guarantee that you'll get to actually summit. We get about 100 yards past the tree line, and I feel a little rain coming down. Now, I'm bringing up the rear of our group and, because I'm trying to help this kid really struggling to get him up the mountain too. And when I, as soon as I feel the rain, our two Trek guides turn around, look at me, and go, Casey, turn around and go back. And I just thought, okay, I guess we're just staying out of the rain. Tree line's right there. We'll just take a little breather. We'll come back out. I start turning around. I go back. Uh, I start walking. I go about, I don't know, 20 steps. He goes, go faster. And I was like, okay, chill out, guys. And so I keep going. Uh, I get another 30. And we get really close to the tree line. And I hear, Casey, run. And at this point, I'm like, is there a bear? Is a bear about to eat us? Is that what's going Is it a mountain lion? Because there's a part of me wants to run. There's a part of me wants to stop. I'm like, I want to see a bear. And I might die, but at least I get to see a bear before I die. And I, we get to the tree line. I stop because I'm like, okay, we're in tree cover. They say, keep going. And I'm thinking, okay, come on. There, or there must be a bear. I wasn't really sure. So we keep going. We get about 200 yards into tree cover, and they say, okay, stop. The guides go to the group and say, we're so sorry, but the weather's just not opening up. We're not going to summit. We need to go ahead and go back to camp. I was really frustrated. I spent months getting ready for this because I did not want to be the guy who struggled up the mountain. I'd been told by the former youth minister and my elders of the church, hey, this is really going to take a lot. I didn't feel like it was that hard because, well, we didn't go that high up anyway. So I was really frustrated. I get back down to, to our camp. Everyone's like taking a breather, taking their packs off, and I'm just feeling frustrated. As I thought, I did all this for nothing, all this training. And uh, I mean, I guess it's good for my cardio, but I, I'd rather be at the summit right now. And the, and the guides take me aside and say, look, we want to level off of why we chose to do this. And I'm thinking, look, is it because we might get struck by lightning? Because I don't like those odds, but could we just lay down if it starts? And they said, no, you don't understand. The higher up on the mountain you go, yes, your chance of getting struck by lightning does increase. But in addition to that, the winds near the top of the mountain are so high that if you get to a steep drop-off and the winds hit you, especially at the summit, it could literally pick up your entire body and throw you off the mountain. You would, you would then fall thousands of feet 
to your death at the bottom of the mountain. And I went from feeling frustrated to feeling really grateful at this point. And so while it was disappointing, um, I, I understood like, hey, this was a safety concern and they were looking out for our well-being. I get to the bottom and we go back from the trip and I'm talking to a minister friend who, he's on staff over at uh, Impact actually, who's done Trek dozens of times. And I was telling him the disappointment I had and they were saying, you know, uh, the, guy, the, the guides were saying like, it could have killed us if, if we had gone down, if we had still tried. And he said, Casey, are you hearing what God is saying to you in this space? I said that if you work really hard, it still might not be good enough. Is that, is that what God's saying to me? And he said, no, no, no. Think about the weather that took place and, and what the terrain of a mountain looks like. Notice at the summit, there's no vegetation. There's no trees. There's no plants. It's just hard stone. He said, life at the summit of a mountain does not exist. It's not even realistic. While you can go up there, you can't stay. No one camps at the top. It'd be crazy. You're almost signing your own execution papers by doing so. Life at the summit doesn't exist. We started this morning with a story from Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. And what is Peter's response? But Lord, it's good for us to be here. And he says, if it pleases you, I'd love to build three shelters. Most scholars point to this being a reference to a, a festival of shelters, like festival of tabernacles, as in, let's do a feast because Moses and Elijah are here. Never mind the fact that I have no idea how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah had been dead for hundreds, probably thousands of years. Google and Facebook wouldn't, have been, wouldn't be invented for another 2,000 years. And so how would they know who those people were? Somehow they did. So Peter says, hey... Let me build three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it's fascinating that that was Peter's response because he was saying, let's stay here. Let's just be here. This is, this is a good place for us to be. Let's just stay. But life on the summit, well, it just doesn't really exist. When we, can, when we look into this story, though, um, there's a lot of heroes of the Old Testament, Right? So why Moses and Elijah? Why not Adam? Why not Noah? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Zerubbabel. I mean, why not some of the other people? Why Moses and Elijah? Not that they weren't people who were, who were major characters in the Old Testament, but why them? I'm going to give you two. One makes a lot of sense and the other's really crazy. All right? Um, and you, you can go with both. You can go with one or the other. It's up to you. Number, reason number one why Moses and Elijah might have been chosen, why they were on the mountain during the transfiguration, for starters, as they show up, if you look at Moses' story, uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And no, the transfiguration did not take place on Mount Sinai. But if you look at the story... Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and encounters God. In Exodus chapter 3, he encounters God in a burning bush on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 20, he brings all of Israel with him, and that's where he receives the Ten Commandments. And so there is a fascinating dynamic where Moses, who is considered the original prophet of Israel. So if a prophet is someone who hears the words of God and then takes those words of God and shares them with the people, very simple form of prophet, right? They share what God is saying. Um, Moses was really the first one to be a mouthpiece on behalf of God. 
And, and Moses, the original prophet, is someone who comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And he's the one who imparts the, what is still considered the Mosaic Law. So we have Moses coming down with the law. And then we have Elijah, who is a really famous prophet because that was when a transition truly happened. Elijah also encountered God, though, on Mount Sinai in 1 Kings chapter 19, except most of Israel at this point had left God. They had turned to other gods. Uh, they turned to really anyone and anything else. They didn't think God was that important. Elijah's running from his life because uh, the king of Israel is trying to have him slaughtered for speaking on behalf of God. And Elijah ends up encountering God on Mount Sinai as well. They're the only two prophets that we have any record of going up and encountering the presence of God. And yet, here they are at the transfiguration with Jesus as well. Well, if we, if we look also in Scripture, if you look in Matthew chapter 5, this is during the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 17, Jesus said this about the law and the prophets. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this was known about Jesus. This is something he said oftentimes is, well, the law and the prophets, Jesus, are you going against the law? Are you getting rid of it? Because like you're the Messiah now. And he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So one of the way, areas we could point to is Moses, the epitome of the law, the Mosaic law, Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, Jesus is there being transfigured in the presence of both of them. This is part of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets from Scripture that they had been waiting for thousands of years to see take place. And, and Peter, James, and John, who were present, this probably didn't even know it at the time. But they shared this story. Now, in addition to this, here's where it gets weird, okay? Let's... Let's get crazy, all right? Um, in Malachi chapter 4, let's back up just a few pages. Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Um, Malachi chapter 4 is the very last chapter of the Old Testament. Verses 2 through 6 are the last verses of the New Testament. Here's where it gets interesting. Malachi says this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in, its, in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all of Israel. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives, his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the, children of, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So here's where it gets interesting. We have this passage from Malachi, and that's the very last prophecy of the Old Testament. That's it. And next uh, is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Straight from there. So... 
Here's one fascinating concept. When Malachi says the son of righteousness, do we have that up there? Yeah, we do. If you look, it's hard to see from where you're at, especially if you're toward the back. When it says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, that is spelled S-U-N, not S-O-N. Son as in sun up in the sky, not son, my young boy. The son of righteousness will shine with healing in its rays. One of the crazy things out there about this transfiguration concept is if we look at the story of Moses in Exodus 20, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He receives the, uh, the Ten Commandments. He receives the law and he goes down and begins sharing it with the Israelites. But what Moses didn't know when he comes down from the mountain, the text said that Moses didn't even realize this, but his face was glowing and radiant like the sun. And yet, when Jesus is transfigured, it said his face began shining white like the sun. So if we want to get crazy, what if when, G- when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and Jesus is transfigured, perhaps this, the glowing that came from Moses' face was once he got there, Moses was actually speaking face to face thousands of years later with the face of Jesus Christ during the transfiguration. It's way out there. You don't want to buy it, you don't have to. What about Elijah? Was his face glowing? Elijah was all by himself, so maybe. But there was no one there to tell him, dude, your face is glowing. He had no idea. So maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But there is this possibility that this transfiguration is actually bringing peace and order to Moses and Elijah in the spaces that they went to. Because Moses was giving out this law. Moses is leading Israel. He doesn't really know what he's doing. If you read the story, you're like, he is making this. He's doing whatever God tells him to do. But outside of that, he's making it up as he goes. Imagine leading six million people and just making every day up as you go. That's what Moses was doing. All right. And Elijah was frustrated because no one would follow God. And yet Elijah experiences the face and the presence in that way. Now, while that is a fascinating thing to think about, the other space that we need to dive into is Peter's response to the transfiguration. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If it pleases you, let me build three shelters, one for each of you. You know, Moses later on in Exodus actually said, God, I want to see your glory. Exodus 33. God, uh, Moses says some things to God that God said, look, you're my servant and you have pleased me. So I'm going to give you what you need. And, And Moses said, then show me your glory. And God's response is, I will allow my presence to pass by you, but you need to be hidden in the cleft of a rock and you will see my backside, but no man can see my face and live. The idea was the presence and the face of God was so pure, so holy, that no human being who had sin was capable of seeing it and surviving. And so the problem that existed and the problem with with Peter's request is the same as that of a Japanese A5 Wagyu steak. Anybody know what this is, Japanese A5 Wagyu steak? We're Texas beef lovers, all right? That was a dumb question. You all know what it is, all right? So here's a Japanese A5 Wagyu steak. You can see the picture, and and from where you're sitting, you're probably like, that is just a hunk of fat, all right? Truth be told, you're kind of right. Here's what Japanese A5 Wagyu steak ultimately is. It is considered the most expensive steak on the planet. Here's why. When they harvest this meat, 
um, they, the Japanese go through a number of techniques to add extra fat throughout the muscles of these cows. As a result, you have marbled fat throughout. Not just marbled fat, but about 80% of a ribeye steak is fat. Now, the natural response here is, that's perfect. Fat equals flavor in a steak. To which I would say, you are right. But uh, is too much of a good thing still a good thing? Here's, here's why I mentioned that. Uh, Guy Fieri, Guy Fieri, uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, Triple D, uh, one of the, and, and he's hosts a number of, of food TV shows. He, he actually, I read something in a video where he said, um, the problem with Wagyu is there's so much fat that while it is delicious, while it does melt in your mouth, you're not capable of eating very much of it at all. There's so much fat that that just expands in your stomach. He said, I, you know, I am around food and cooking all the time. I have never seen someone finish a 12-ounce A5 Wagyu ribeye before. I've never seen it. Because as soon as you eat it, it just expands in your stomach. It's now encouraged that if you do end up eating one of these, you split this with about 12 people. And you eat like two pieces. Um, just because of how much fat is in it. And we think, but this is apex. This is the best. And it's expensive, too. If you look this up, a 12-ounce ribeye that is A5 Wagyu on Amazon.com is $170. Just 12 ounces. That's it. And so that is a whole lot of money for a raw steak. But that's what they charge because of how rare it is to come across. But at the same time, we want to consume and consume. And all of a sudden, we eat three to four pieces, and it just feels like we gained 400 pounds in the process. Because sometimes when we feel these good things, we want more and more and more. So what does that look like when we have what I would call a spiritual high? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like uh, youth ministry, oftentimes, uh, I grew up in an, era, in an era where they like, they worked hard to push these spiritual highs on us. You know what I'm talking about? They give a sermon that's really convicting. Like it's just designed to make you feel bad about yourself. And then they sing these really powerful songs and, and everyone raises their hands and they're confessing to one, oh, we're so close. And then you have the church camp experience. And then there's the summit at the top of Trek experience. And, and there's the mission trip experience. And then there's the, the Lindsay singing hymn of heaven experience here in our worship service on Sunday morning. Let me start by saying this. There's nothing wrong with them. Okay. These are very good things. I'm a huge fan of him and of him of heaven when we sing it here. All right? Great things. All very good things. Here's the problem that we've started to experience as Christians and within churches. There are churches still to this day who they try to manufacture these spiritual high moments on a weekly basis. We're trying to experience this transforming presence and movement of God on an every week basis, maybe an every day basis. While there's nothing wrong with that, if we look at the timeline of Scripture and when these spiritual high moments happen, it wasn't an every week something incredible took place. The transfiguration didn't take place once a week. It took place one time ever. That was it. And we try to repeat these and repeat these and repeat these. And there comes a point where even if we feel like we accomplish it, we are left feeling frustrated. Why isn't God showing up? Because the last time just wasn't enough. So we go to a new church. 
where the worship might be better, more powerful, where we go to another church, where the preaching might be uh, more convicting or, or more uplifting. We go to another place. We go to a retreat. We try again and again and again because, well, we just want to repeat that one time we experienced God as if when God revealed himself, it wasn't enough in the first place. Have we ever thought about what if when God reveals himself, we just let that be sacred? Except not even Peter could handle this, right? He, didn't, he says it's good for us to be here, and then he follows up. Let's build shelters. And let's just keep doing this again and again and again, over and over and over. So how about we shift gears when we experience a spiritual high? What if instead of trying to repeat it and generate it over and over, we decided to discern why that might have taken place in our life to begin with. Here's what, I've, here's what I've discovered. Looking at scripture, looking at some of the spiritual highs in my own life, I've arrived at two conclusions, two possibilities as to why those moments might happen in our lives. Okay? The spiritual highs that we experience are usually either relieving us from desolation or preparing us for a beautiful work ahead, which could be desolation. Here's what I mean by that. We might be in a really, really bad spot and we need to feel the comfort and presence of God wrapping his arms around us because things have been hard and we've been wondering, where are you, God? Or perhaps you're in a space where a spiritual high takes place and you might feel guilty because, well, other people needed it, but I, I'm in a really good, things are going well for me. My family's doing well. My, our health is well. Work is going well. Financially, we're stable. Uh, is it okay that we experience this and perhaps it's God preparing you but if we look if we look at the story of the transfiguration here here's one of the reasons biblically that we arrive at this all right if we look at, at chapter 17 of Matthew and we back up to chapter 16 the story that takes place before the transfiguration is awkward as all get out because Jesus is with his disciples and he decides to predict his upcoming betrayal and death to them. And, and he goes to them, he says, the son of man will be betrayed into the hands of the enemy. He will be tried, he will be crucified, he will be killed, and then on the third day he will rise again. Well, on the third day he'll rise again. Um, the, again, it hadn't happened yet. Like, we all know, like, right? So uh, most of us, at least, were three days later, he's killed, he's resurrected. The disciples haven't experienced this yet. So they're sitting there thinking, okay, raised from the dead. No one's ever done that before. Uh, what in the world is that? But it was more the idea of the loss in the first place. The Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be betrayed and killed. And Peter, who's kind of the spokesperson of the disciples, takes Jesus over to the side where the disciples can still see him. And he goes to him, he says, Lord, for forbid it. I can't imagine the thought of, of, you, of you being killed. I mean, later uh, in the book of John, J Peter even says to Jesus, he says, where else are we supposed to go, God? You have the word, Jesus, you have the words to eternal life. Where else are we going to go? So the idea that this words to eternal life is going to be killed, Peter goes and says, forbid it. I can't imagine. And Jesus grabs Peter in front of the disciples and pulls him very close. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Not exactly the words of encouragement if you're Peter, Right? Peter, who's been so adamant and, and for all of his faults, has tried so hard to follow Jesus. But 
I mean, Jesus looks and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, but not from God's. Now, we hear this from Jesus, and again, we know what happens. But imagine being in Peter's shoes. He's going there and said, Jesus, I love you so much. I can't imagine the thought of anything happening. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine the next few days as Peter walks around thinking, I thought I was following Jesus. Am I Satan? Am I the one who's going to betray Jesus into the hands of the... Am I going to be the reason he's killed? And all the disciples hear this, and, and Jesus had other teaching, but for the next few days, we don't have any record of anything that takes place in the book of Matthew. So for days, Peter gets to sit there thinking, I guess I'm Satan? How in the world did this happen? How am I the evil one? And who but Peter gets to be one of the people who goes up on the mountain and sees Jesus transfigured? You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, there's a prophet who came after Elijah by the name of Elisha. And Elisha was a prophet who was trying to bail the Israelites out of, giving, of getting overthrown by another enemy army. And the enemy army was bigger, and they were uh, probably a little more powerful but uh, the enemy army, whenever they would go attack Israel, God would tell Elisha, here's what the enemy army's doing. You go tell the king so they can uh, be ready for it. Surprise attacks weren't working. Uh, sieges weren't working. Israel was always prepared. It was because Elijah was, Elisha was going to the king and saying, here's how you need to be prepared. Here's how you stop it. And it worked every time. The enemy king goes to his servant and said, who of you is telling Israel what we're doing? And they said, my Lord, none of us. But that prophet over there, Elisha, he somehow knows what we're doing every time we do it. Nobody tells him, but he always knows. And that enemy king says, bring him to me. So Elisha is in this uh, kind of far off village town. And he's alone in this home. And Elisha has a servant who does a lot of his bidding for him. This servant is probably like a young teenager, probably just a kid. And Elisha is, is doing what God has asked, but they fall asleep one night. And that next morning, they wake up. The servant wakes up first, though, and he looks out around, and he starts to go out to grab food and to grab water. He goes out of the house, and he looks at the surrounding village, and the enemy army had completely surrounded that entire village overnight to come and take Elisha. Now, the servant freaks out. I mean, he loses it. And rightfully so, because he goes back in. Elisha, Elisha, wake up. We are surrounded. What are we supposed to do? Because he knew if they're not going to kill Elisha, they're at least going to carry him off. They have no need for a servant, so they'll just kill him. And the servant knows, I'm dead. I am dead. They have no need to leave me alive. Um, it, it would benefit them more to kill me. And if they're going to take Elisha, they'll take him. But I'm not surviving one way or another. He is beside himself. He thought he was serving God. He was serving God's prophet. Can you imagine this? I mean, it's the equivalent of like a, a, an Uber driver, a DoorDash guy, just coming in and all of a sudden, like he's just doing the bidding of someone else. It's all he was doing. And he's thinking, I'm dead. I am not surviving this. And Elisha wakes up and he looks and he says, hey, don't worry, there's more of us than there is of them. And, you know, the teenage DoorDasher looks and goes, okay, one, two, one, two, three, four, five. Well, that's not true. And starts losing it again. How in the world is this possible? How? And Elisha looks and prays to God, Lord, open his eyes. And just like that, the servant begins looking around the house, and he sees the enemy army still there. 
But he looks at the hills and the mountains behind them, and he sees chariots of fire and angels manning them surrounding the entire hillside, knowing those chariots, those angels outnumber the enemy 10 to 1. They're going to be okay. This space where he thought, nothing but death is coming my way, and it becomes, oh, God is providing me with safety, with comfort. He's given this spiritual high, this experience of God's armies, the heaven's armies, they're protecting him. But perhaps we're in a season where things are actually going really well. We're in a good space. You know, right after the transfiguration, as great as that was, and he offers to build the shelters, God's voice comes and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. On the way down, Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has risen. And they get to the bottom of the mountain. They don't even get a chance to tell. Peter, James, and John don't even get a chance to say to the other apostles, dude, you are not going to believe what happened up there. They don't even get a chance to do that because there's already a man who has brought his demon-possessed son to the other disciples who are at the foot of the mountain. A work of God was awaiting them from the moment they got to the foot of the mountain. Where this man goes to Jesus and said, Jesus, my, my son has been possessed by a demon for most of his life. He, he foams at the mouse. He, 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 uh, he rides his body. He screams. He runs around. No one can, can, can control him. And he can't stop convulsing. And I, and I went to your disciples to see if they could help fix this. And they, they couldn't do it. Could, could you do it? Jesus has this incredible encounter that Peter, James, and John get to witness, and yet the moment they get down, the work of God is needed amongst them. Perhaps the spiritual high that they experienced was preparing them for the work that was down at the base of the mountain. So perhaps when you get to the summit, there's work waiting at the bottom. So before, there's this desolation, the transfiguration provides an oasis, and then after the transfiguration, there's a work waiting at the very base of this mountain. So perhaps regardless of the season that you're in, there's a discernment level that does take place. My wife and I, about three years ago, were, uh, we were both on staff at a church in San Antonio, and a lot of stuff had taken place. So it, was just, it was hard in ministry. Um, it, there was a six-week stretch where two elders resigned, and then the preaching minister had been there for like 30 years. He left too, all for different reasons, but it, it, was, it was bad. It was a sad split. A um, number of people were upset about it. Uh, Ashley and I and, and another minister were left to kind of pick up the pieces. It was a long journey. We kick off 2021 with snowpocalypse, and then about a month later, we had eight deaths in eight weeks at our church, none of which were COVID-related, the very first one being a one-year-old little boy. It was taking the life out of us. It was hard. That fall, we got invited to this minister support retreat. It was, it was really, really special. Um, and some people who'd been doing ministry for 25 plus years just loved on us in some very special ways. Built a lot of great relationships, still have those relationships. Um, and it was such a blessing to just receive. And, and right after that, um, Ashley and I had also planned just a little time off. And, uh, and, and so we, we end up, I, I found a number of, of deals and, and, I, don't, and we, uh, I found that we could go for really cheap to stay at one of the nicer hotels in Las Vegas. So we fly out there. We're hanging out in Vegas. No, we didn't do anything wrong. Don't judge us, okay? Um, but we're in, we're in Vegas. And, and I don't know if you know about this, but like there's a lot of shows. The restaurant scene's really popular out there. So uh, we're going to, like we had planned to go to this uh, 
unique southern comfort food restaurant, and then one of the Cirque du Soleil shows afterwards. And we, we go sit down at a table at, uh, at this, at this uh, southern comfort food restaurant, and we're talking about ministry, the areas that we want to improve, work on, what, what plans we have for our church, how great the retreat was before, and uh, the, the couple that's sitting at the table right next to us was there, and, and the guy leans over, he goes, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, are you a pastor? And uh, said, well, yeah, we, we both are. Yeah, why, why do you ask? He said, that's crazy. I'm a pastor myself. I'm a worship pastor, and, and I, I'm uh, serving at a church in Colorado Springs. And uh, his name was Travis. His wife's name was Claire. And Ashley and I just start kind of striking up a conversation Talking about the challenges of ministry in different areas, uh, the challenges of worship ministry, children's ministry, overall church ministry, the challenges of doing uh, church and ministry in the midst of COVID and the pandemic, how challenging it had been. We commented on the food and how much we liked it. He talked about how they were really into just the restaurant scene in general. So this was a regular trip for them where they'd try different restaurants and, and having this really cool conversation, making these new friends and thought, this is, this is really neat. Well, at one point toward the end of the meal, Ashley gets up needing to use the restroom. She goes out. I'm still talking to him a little bit, and I start taking another bite of food, and all of a sudden, Travis and Claire go, well, this is great. Thanks, bye. And they get up and just leave. And like I'm like mid-bite as I say this. Not like, well, we need to go, and this has been fun. Hey, would you like to hang out with us? Just, all right, this is great. See you. And they take off. And I don't even get a, hardly a chance to say bye before they're just out the door <laughs> and around the corner. Ashley comes back and she goes, where did Travis and Claire go? And I said, they left. And she immediately goes, what did you say? What did you say? And I'm like, I didn't say anything. I was taking a bite of food and I, I don't know what happened. And she goes, seriously, what'd you say? And I said, I, I promise. I was just, I was, I was eating food. I, I thought things were good. I didn't make any like controversial statements or anything. Like we were just talking ministry and life and they just up and left. She's like, well that's weird. And the server comes by shortly after. He says, is there anything else I can get you guys? And I said, I think we're good. We're pretty full. I, we'll just take the check when, whenever you can get it to us. He said, don't worry. It's already taken care of. And we immediately know they didn't want to give us a chance to tell them no or to pay for their meal or pay them back. And so they left as soon as they possibly could. Um, Travis is still a friend. I, I, I was just texting him a couple weeks ago about uh, his ministry out in Colorado Springs. We walk out of that restaurant, and we're kind of in tears at this point because we're just as hard as life and ministry have been at this point. Um, we, we experienced this incredible retreat of being loved on by some very seasoned ministers who really know how to, how to love us in the ways that we really needed. And then to go to this special place, this unique restaurant, and, and to then just say, hey, your meal, which wasn't cheap, it, it was completely covered. Ashley goes out, she's immediately like, okay, we got we to gotta track this guy down. We got we to gotta figure out what church he's at. Let's figure out his address. And I'm like, okay, let's not get creepy. Let's calm down before we do that. But yes, we do, we do want to, you know, figure out a way to repay the favor. But I said, Ashley, I think we need to stop because I think God's inviting us into a season of receiving. Because we give and we give and we give. Perhaps God is saying, let me just bless you right now. Let me just take care of you. Because sometimes God is preparing you for a season that's going to get, um, sometimes it can be challenging, but sometimes it's a beautiful work 
that takes place. And sometimes we can be tired from good works. Sometimes we can leave and say, that was wonderful. I'm very tired, but it was a wonderful thing. You see, we, we decided to embrace that season of receiving, and there'd be a time when we could give back, and we were able to give back to them eventually, but um, we get back from that knowing that there's a season of receiving that God might be putting a unique, special work before us. And about three months after that meal was paid for, this guy named Alan Calvert called me on behalf of Cinco Ranch Church of Christ and wanted to know if we might be interested in talking about a ministry opening that was there. I'm not going to tell you the end of that story, okay? You'll have to ask me later, all right? But sometimes God prepares us for works and moments that are going to be life-giving, and it doesn't mean it isn't tiresome. There's a lot of great things that take place in this church that we're tired from at the end of it. Sometimes it can be life-taking, but sometimes God reveals himself to us to say, here is a place of water where you've been in a dry land. And other times he said, you're about to go into a dry land. So take some water, take some bread with you. I'm going to bless you here and now. Our praise team is going to come on out on stage. And prayer team, y'all can head to the back. But I want to look into this story. And I want to invite you to consider the concept of these spiritually high moments. Maybe you experience one today, maybe next week. Maybe you're coming off of one. Maybe it'll be a while from now. But instead of saying, Let's ha- how can we repeat this again? Instead to look and say, what season of life is God inviting me into? One final word of encouragement I want to give you on that, though, is if you get to a point where you're experiencing this presence and movement of God, and you're thinking, man, he is blessing me so wonderfully. There is that time to discern. You'll have that time. You'll have that space. But when you enter into that song, into that prayer, into that communal group where you find so much love and blessing, may you look at that moment and respond in the same way that Peter did during this transfiguration, that regardless of life, regardless of what season you're in, when God reveals himself to you, know that it is good to be in that space at that time. And may you look and know that God is present among you and that it is truly good to be here now. If you'd like to pray and discern over that and experience a new life and relationship with God, you can head to the back as we stand and sing this next song.